Genghis Khan, conqueror of the world. This is going to be a very interesting episode discussing Mongolian culture, history, and 1200, the year 1200. So this is really the reign of Genghis Khan. And this is such a fascinating, fascinating time. And there's a great book on this by uh, Descartes. And it's basically called Genghis Khan, conqueror of the world. And this is basically going to be some lessons I extracted out of this book. Very, very powerful. Continuing on with our series, you know, we here at the Modern Academy, we talk a lot about a lot of different things, things going on in the media, especially during this time of Corona. Um, We've been talking a lot about important voices in, in shifts in culture, taking a balanced approach to things, you know, as ancient Greek philosophers always talked about, which is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you can't just be extremely polarized in one side or the other and not look at the other side. You know, as great quote once it goes is the best person to argue one side is someone who can argue the opposing side better than their opponent can. So really what that comes down to is not having your ego be attached to these arguments, not having your ego be attached to things. And it's, it's important to learn from history. You know, we focus much too much on the past 24 hours, not as much on the past 10,000 years. You know, how much do you know about Genghis Khan and the Mongolian reign? It's, it's just a fascinating time in history as far as the people that followed him. You know, Genghis Khan actually searched for something called the Philosopher's Stone. He, uh, it was this Taoist form of alchemy, and he followed this monk to, uh, to what is supposed to be, you know, the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan, which is where the Philosopher's Stone was supposed to be. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. So right off the bat, one of the interesting things that I learned is he actually kind of had this Mao-esque ideology. So he actually saw it that the myth was kept alive. You know, heaven, he said that heaven has ordered me to rule over all men. And that's kind of Mao, Hitler, these different people. But the interesting thing about Genghis Khan is his following was much different than these other people. And at this time in history, he didn't really know anything else. You know, think about being born in that place. You know, we take for granted the random lottery ticket that we get for where we're born. People in the United States are so attached to the ideology of the United States. People in um, basically anywhere where they're really proud. You know what I mean? They're really proud of where they came from, which is great. It's great. But you have to at least understand, again, thesis and this is synthesis. You have to at least play devil's advocate and go, okay, how am I wrong in this case? You know, this is one of the reasons things like meditation are important. Things like just sitting down and really thinking about things is so important because otherwise people get trapped in these ideologies. That's why that's when giant issues come in in our world. And for example, the cons and Maoist China and Stalin Russia and... Um, Hitler, all these different people that just, you know, there's a great saying, which is 99% of men's issues and men being humankind. I'm not, it's not just men. 99% of humankind's issues stem from them not being able to sit in a chair and just think. Most people just fill their days with all these different things. It's just spurts of activity. And most of it really doesn't lead to anything that's actually productive. Most of it just leads to the same result over and over again. And as Albert Einstein says, you know, what's the definition of humanity? Doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. So that's how you can kind of extract lessons out of things like Genghis Khan. 
And again, you know, the, he said the protection, the help of the eternal heavens has enabled me to destroy my enemies and attain high dignity. With the death of Kochu, which was the only man who had frustrated his designs, was eliminated there and was nobody else. Not even any religious figure to equal Genghis Khan. So <clears throat> this is very interesting. You know, the, the Khans were savages. The Mongolians in, in this time were really savages. They're, they had this nomadic lifestyle and... It was rumored that they would even, <clears throat> in times of need, like eat human flesh. And <clears throat> a lot of people get all their information from this Disney movie called Milan. You know, before I read this book, most of what I knew about, I didn't know a lot about Mongolian culture or Genghis Khan, but <clears throat> everybody gets, you know, in in uh, that Disney movie Milan where she basically has to go to war for, for her um, country and they fight the Khans. They fight Genghis Khan and it's, it's a great, great movie. He's portrayed as this really dark, evil man. And again, it's, it's all about your frame of reference. So <clears throat> if you were born in Mongolia at this time, the things that you may now look back on as unethical, if you were born in that time, you might have thought that was ethical. That's kind of like your frames of reference. That's why it's important to read so important to read because if you have limited frames of reference, as in all you know is what your parents knew and all they knew is what their parents knew, well, you're trapped in this continuous cycle. And again, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same things over and over again. So the key to evolution is variation. And the reason we want to evolve, the reason we want to better is to better humankind, to better the world, have people, you know, end starvation, end these, these issues and learning from history so we don't repeat the past. So... <clears throat> According to him, the Mongols showed more submission and obedience than the clergy in Europe. So this kind of shows that <clears throat> Genghis Khan had this just cult-like religious following, you know, because he, he basically mythologized himself by saying that the heavens wanted him to conquer mankind. And the Yasa is basically like this, this um, document. So no manuscript of the Dasa survives, nor has any document describing its contents yet been discovered. Assumptions about this book of laws must therefore be treated with caution. There can be no real certainty about what was written in it. <clears throat> there exists only a few fragments written about the Yasa by um, Persian, Arabian, and Sir Syrian historians, all of whom lived after the death of Genghis Khan. The most important of them was undoubtedly the Persian writer Jubani, <clears throat> and it is not impossible that that he was the source of information about the Yasa given by others. <clears throat> it is unlikely that any of these historians ever saw a copy of the Yasa, which was written in Mongolian in the Yurgahur script. So basically, you know, a little context here. The Mongol, I kind of skipped over the beginning of the book, but this is, he kind of mythologizes himself as he gains his power. But Originally, you know, it was these different Mongolian tribes and he basically conquered them all. <clears throat> and he did this really, he, he used these military tactics that were absolutely insane. And he, he kind of had this military mind that just defeated so many other people. So, you know, he, oftentimes the Mongolians would have way, way less um, forces than the opponent. And we're going to actually discuss some of the crazy um, things like using puppets uh, using puppets on horses to make it seem like they had way more people than they than they actually had. You know, um, in the book Forty Eight Laws of Power, if you've ever read that, it's that's one of the most important things is kind of acting crazy. You know, kind of 
intimidating your your um, foes or your potential foes by acting crazy, you know, scarcity. And that way, when you go into battle, you have this upper hand. And this means that in its later formation, the total guard was 10,000 men strong. So just 10,000 men with um, Genghis Khan. And he decided that when and where this guard with the nucleus of the army should be deployed. He had thorough knowledge of the dangers of unexpected turns of events which accompanied the nomadic life. He knew that he had to protect himself with a foolproof permanent security system, providing a terrible and ever-ready striking force. The bodyguard and the elite guard could always be reinforced by the rest of his guard if it became necessary. So they basically used all these different tactics and it was so, so interesting. So they um, carried, you know, a bunch of different weapons and tools. You know, usually they had like two bows, three quivers, um, different kinds of arrows, a lance with a sickle, and then um, the tons of different equipment basically that they utilized. And in case of dire need, the Mongol cavalrymen opened his horse's uh, jugular vein and suck the blood and then close the wound. So this is kind of one of the examples of this kind of barbaric nature that they used that goes in line with this cannibalism that was rumored to be in the Mongolian culture. So they would actually, in dire need, you know, they would have these giant journeys conquering different areas that they didn't know. You know, this was before maps, before cars. They were literally riding on horsebacks, crossing through rivers and, uh, you know, sleeping where they ate, hunting, cooking their food, and, and all these different things. They were truly living a nomadic lifestyle. And, again, this is a crazy, crazy one, which is that they would o- open the jugular vein and then actually suck the blood and then close the wound. And each man had one reserve horse and sometimes as many as three or four. This is a secret of the speed at which the Mongols could cover very great distances. So, as if you read this book, you'll understand how many different countries they conquered. You know, they went all the way to Georgia, you know, modern day Tbilisi, not the Georgia in the United States, it's the country that a lot of people don't know of. It's basically the easternmost European country. And basically to make the numbers appear greater, the Mongols made man-sized puppets, which they mounted on the reserve horses, and which, seen against the horizon, looked very realistic. This device had let's see, had a particularly demoralizing effect upon only suitable sieges. However, the Mongols frequently spread rumors ahead of their advancing advancing armies, giving the impression that they were twice as numerous as they really were. To strengthen this impression, um, apologies, prisoners marching in order to the battle made accompanied by the army. So they actually made the prisoners accompany the army to make it seem like they had much larger numbers. And in the hours of the darkness, the Mongols had another trick. Each man lit three to five torches at some distance from each other. In this way, the enemy was left in doubt about the real strength of the Mongols, as each torch could represent one warrior. From the Chinese, they learned that the use of siege machines, such as catapults, battering rams, natha barrels, throwers, kedges, and also how to undermine fortress walls. Later, they adopted siege equipment as used by the Islamic people. So the mass slaughter of populations was largely because the Mongols were in most cases numerically inferior to their opponents. 
They therefore had to avoid threat from their rear at all costs. Before Genghis Khan attacked Karit, for example, he destroyed the the other um, basically surrounding areas. So that was Tajut and the Tartars. And so that they could not stab him in the back later in China and in Khwarezm. So basically, this was the origins of uh, guerrilla warfare, in, in my opinion. So guerrilla warfare is basically this tactic of kind of ragtagging, um, especially when the, the Irish army used this a lot, um, the IRA, and basically using guerrilla warfare as these different tactics to basically tactically, um, tactically get at larger armies. So if you have a much smaller force, it's basically using your smarts, using your intellect to take different angles and defeat the force. I can, I can get really complicated with this. I'm just trying to simplify it and kind of find the synthesis. Before undertaking a campaign, Genghis Khan tried to gather as much information as possible about the political and military situation of the enemy country, chiefly by means of spies. We must assume that observation and sense of direction were unusually highly developed in the Mongols. Otherwise, it is not possible to account for their movements over enormous distances without maps. So this is absolutely insane. You know, try thinking about going for wherever you are today to modern day Georgia. If you don't understand where that's at, that's like one of the first issues because they didn't have maps at this point in history and they were able to conquer these different countries. So it just basically shows that they had superior skills as far as um, topography, which is basically the study of maps and sense of direction. So not only was he superior in his like military tactics, he, he actually had this superiority as far as it came to topography. So leading the movements of the army and fixing the positions of the camps, cavalry forces of the size used by the Mongols in their major campaigns could not be moved at such short notice. It seems certain that careful planning preceded each of the major military campaigns. So that's something that's very interesting. So careful planning is is vital. Careful planning and really thinking things out tactically using their their, um, different tactics as far as having three or four horses extra per soldier, which is something that's very interesting. You know, most um, nomadic groups would just have one horse per soldier or even some none. And this severely limits your um, basically ability to move in this time. You know, again, really think about if you had to right now without planes, without a car, how would you get to another country from where you are now? Most people, I mean, most people don't do this at all. This is um, something that's very interesting. That's why studying this Mongolian culture, this nomadic way of living is, is just fascinating. And highly recommend you pick up this book. This is, again, Genghis Khan, Conqueror of the World. We'll probably do a little part two of this, talking about the greatest raid and um, just kind of the second half of this book. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. And until next time.